0: Welcome to Canada's Most Irreverent Talk
1: Show. This is The Andrew
0: Lawton Show, brought to you by True North.
1: Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show here. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on true north i will start with a bit of uh, pop culture which i don't normally do because i'm neither popular nor particularly well cultured but i saw over the weekend uh, the Frasier reboot so i don't know if i'm alone in this i'm a, a big fan of the show Frasier. i've watched it more times than is probably healthy in fact i've never even watched cheers from start to finish but Frasier, i'm there for so when i learned that Frasier was getting remade I was very excited. I like Kelsey Grammer. I like Frazier, all of that. And then I learned that, like, no one from the original Frasier is going to be in Frasier. They, like, didn't cast Roz, they didn't cast Niles, they didn't cast Daphne. Uh, The father, John Mahoney, passed away, I think, last year or two years ago. And they've, like, moved it from Seattle to Boston again, but Cheers has been demolished. And I was, like, so nervous. I'm like, I'm going to give you my money and I'm going to watch this thing. But I was so nervous it was going to be terrible. And I got to say, the first two episodes were absolutely splendid it's a different show like it's not the same show i was it plato that did the allegory about the sailboat where he said if you replace the sail is it the same boat what if you replace the mast is it the same boat what if you replace it was kind of that sort of thing like how many things can you replace while still keeping the essence of what it is but uh nevertheless now the problem was is that it was on paramount plus which I don't know if you. I feel like Christian Freeland now talking about all the streaming services. But if you've ever seen like Paramount Plus is part of Amazon Prime, and I'm like, oh, that's great, I have Amazon Prime, so I can watch this. And then oh no, you need to pay extra to watch uh, Paramount Plus. So now I actually need to do the Christian Freeland thing because now I'm paying for Prime, I'm paying for this Paramount Plus thing, which I'll cancel, I guess, once Frazier ends. And I've got, I don't have Disney Plus. I've already cancelled that, you know, inflation being as terrible as it is. But uh, anyway, if you're a Fraser fan out there, the two episodes that are out so far are actually quite delightful. Uh, Nevertheless, real big news out there, not just my television viewing habits. Jugmeet Singh has held on to his leadership of the New Democratic Party. Now, Uh, He had to face a leadership review because that's what you do at a party convention. After you lose an election, he's had to face three, of these things so far. And what was interesting about uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, getting 80%, which sounds impressive. It's like, okay, 80% support from your party. That's wonderful. Well, the challenge there is that it's less support than he had in the last leadership review and less further than the one before that. Here was what he said upon claiming victory after the results. His confidence in you has gone down about twenty points since twenty eighteen. What's not resonating with delegates? Uh,
2: I, again, I want to say I, I feel really inspired and encouraged by receiving a strong mandate. I don't take anything for granted. I never have my whole life, and to receive a strong mandate to continue on gives me inspiration to continue to do the work that we're doing. I think there's also a clear message, though, and and I take this message to heart. New Democrats always want more. We're, we're the party that always say. You're not going far enough. We need more and specifically more help to give Canadians a break in these difficult times. And I, and I take that message back. That message gives the, actually me more inspiration and gives me more strength to go out and fight for more. Uh, we've got an opportunity now. We're in a position of a minority government and we are being asked very clearly by membership to go out and fight to fix the problems that people are dealing with. I think it's, uh, it's clear that people are dealing with many challenges. We've got a cost of living crisis. We've got groceries that are high. We've got a lot of challenges. And the Liberals are not solving these problems. And the Conservatives can't be trusted because they are not who they pretend they are. They're not gonna actually fix these problems. So New Democrats are turning to us and saying, hey, we need you to do more. And I take that, I'm inspired by that. I'm gonna get out and work even harder.
1: But how can you sell that message to the country when support for your own message is dwindling amongst the ranks here?
2: (coughs) I would say I've got a strong mandate. And new Democrats are saying, get out and work harder. I'm going to get out and work harder.
1: So he's got a strong mandate and look 80% support is not nothing. It's most conservative leaders fail to get that in leadership reviews. I'm thinking of John Tory for example back in Ontario in 2007. But I also want to make a point of noting here that Jagmeet Singh has not hysterically been has hi, whoa there's a freudian slip. I was going to say historically, uh, not hysterically. He well maybe it is hysterical, who knows. He's not historically been the best judge of how well he's done. You may recall this moment from the 2019 election in which the NDP went from actually having a pretty solid spot in the House of Commons and just plummeted down to fourth party status. But uh, you'd think Jugmeet Singh had won the election.
0: I'm not gonna get you, up. I'm not gonna you, up. i up.
1: Love the song. Good dance moves. Don't take anything away from that. I do think it might not be the most appropriate time to dance. 2021, NDP as well has a humiliating show. Uh, The dance was a little bit more subtle, but still, he busted out the moves in 2021. I like, by the way, that Jagmeet Singh has just one dance. Like, it's the same dance move. It's like two years past, doesn't matter. It's the same dance move. It was like uh, one of those Seth Rogen movies. He only had one move, and it was like to do the dice throw across the dance floor. Uh, So Jagmeet Singh is the Seth Rogen of NDP dancing. But uh, there is a category that is not a particularly competitive one. In any case, Jagmeet Singh loves to do the dance. It's like the loser. I don't know. There's a touchdown dance in football where if you win, you do like a little touchdown dance. Uh, There's no losers dance. Like you don't lose when the other team, uh, or you don't dance when the other team gets a touchdown, which is what Jagmeet Singh is doing. So uh, this is the guy who fails to realize that he is single-handedly the reason that Justin Trudeau is still the prime minister right now. He treats every election as though it is a win. He is holding on to the leadership of the party because he knows he needs his pension and he is done after the next election when he fails to any gains but he is actually despite not being a particularly competent or capable political operator a very powerful figure in canadian politics right now he is holding the government hostage except he's not he could he could and he is not using that power and you may know by now, I always love pointing out the absurdity of whenever I should have pulled a few examples today. Whenever Jagmeet Singh takes to Twitter or gives some statement at a press conference in which he talks about, "Oh, the liberals and conservatives are failing Canadians. They're terrible. Everything they do is awful." And you know how dare Canadians need better? And it's like, hmm, that's odd from the guy who votes to keep them in. That's odd from the guy who voted to approve the liberal budget without whom there would not be right now a liberal government most likely. But uh, nevertheless, he has managed to secure this great deal. It's called a supply and confidence agreement. It's actually a coalition government. It is a deal in which the NDP will agree to support liberals on confidence motions and bills in exchange for a few concessions. Now, the, the problem is that he hasn't actually gotten any of the concessions. The Liberals have given the NDP absolutely nothing that the Liberals weren't already campaigning on. Uh, you know, you may look and say, well, hang on, I think Canada is already a socialist hellscape. Uh, maybe this is the Jagmeet Singh's fault. No, Justin Trudeau was already going to make Canada a socialist hellscape on his own. He didn't need the NDP to do that. But the NDP believes he should go even further to the left than he is. We have not yet seen, however, uh, national pharmacare. We've not yet seen national dental care. I mean, these are things the Liberals promised, but they're like the bread and butter for the NDP and they don't exist. Now I'm not complaining about that. I'm not saying that Canadians deserve or want or can afford these things. I'm saying that if you're Jugmeet Singh and you've been keeping this government alive for uh, several years now, and you don't have anything to show for it, What on earth are you doing? Like trade your Rolex or something, like do something to give yourself uh, a shred of wiggle room here in political capital because you're squandering everything that you have right now. So the reason I bring this up is as a lengthy preamble to what NDP members also voted for. They may have voted to uh, keep Jagmeet Singh at the helm of the party, but they also passed a resolution calling on the NDP to withhold its support from the Liberals if the Liberals don't deliver on Pharmacare. The Liberals promised this in 2015. This has been a pillar of their existence as a party, but they've never really made any moves on it. For the NDP, this is what they want. It socialized everything. The NDP would love nothing more than to take all of the inefficiencies and bureaucracies and inequalities of the healthcare system now and expand that in to pharmacare. Like they would love to make everything in Canada as inefficient as the healthcare system goes, uh, but they've not managed to do that. So uh, Jugmeet Singh could very easily have said to the Liberals, listen, we're not going to vote for your budget unless you do this. But he's not. He's not actually done that because he is a weak political leader. And it's odd that the NDP membership have not seemed to realize this in as large numbers as you would expect them to, that uh, they are still believing he is their champion. Now, Obviously, we've seen in the last week a bit of a schism among the organized left on Israel issues. Jugmeet Singh did like the bare minimum. He came out with the condemnation of Hamas. And then, of course, the anti-Semitic wing of the NDP. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not the whole party. It's a wing. Uh, comes out and says, we're ashamed of you and embarrassed by you. They got uh, crashed by a bunch of... Uh, union representatives who uh, wanted to call out Israeli apartheid war crimes or whatever. Uh, They kind of just, it's like Mad Libs. They just sub in the same words over and over again in different configurations. But the NDP, to its credit held firm in the leadership of it anyway, that Israel is not the bad guy here. So the whole point of this is that Jagmeet Singh has delivered absolutely nothing. And I have no interest in voting for the NDP or running for the NDP. I mean, I I think generally speaking, we have a two-party system and we pretend it is not that. But I will say the NDP could be a powerful force. And here's the thing is that we can talk about majority governments versus minority governments, but in most of Canada's history, governments have been comprised of parties that have won a majority of the seats and have had essentially an unchecked power over what they do. It is only relatively recently that minorities have started to feel like they were the norm. It was a liberal minority in 2004, a conservative minority in 2006, and in 2008. You then had a liberal minority in 2019 and 2021. And these have meant that smaller parties actually wield a tremendous influence. Now, In the case of the Liberals right now, they need the support of the NDP to do anything or the Bloc Québécois or the Conservatives, but the NDP have been the willing and able dance partners. But uh, the NDP has in its historic context here a unique moment and they have done nothing with it. And NDP members seem to have bought in to the fact that uh, their party uh, has uh, has less power than it does. But uh, nevertheless, that is exactly where we are now. I, I wanna also point out, speaking of NDP, I, I get every now and then criticized, or uh, I not criticized, sometimes it's criticism, but some people don't like that I don't cover Manitoba politics as often on this show. And I did get this emailed to me by a listener this morning Louis Riel, who I'm not going to go on. I I promised myself I wouldn't do a uh, historical tangent about this, but Louis Riel, uh, very controversial figure in Canadian politics. He's got some popularity in Manitoba, uh, but generally speaking, in Ontario and in English Canada, he's seen as a traitor. He was sentenced to death for high treason, but he was an influential figure in Manitoba and Western Canadian politics. Now, he never was the premier of Manitoba because Manitoba ceased to be a province uh, when Louis Riel was waging his rebellions in Manitoba. But uh, the the thing that's interesting is Wab Canoe who is the premier designate of the province, has said that he is going to honorarily recognize Louis Riel as the first premier of Manitoba. So like we're completely rewriting history here. And it's interesting that uh, the NDP, whose members and supporters will oftentimes go around and uh, tear down statues, behead statues. Uh, It was in Winnipeg, where a statue of Her Late Majesty was toppled by uh, people that believe we need to judge historical figures by today's standards rather than their own. And it's interesting that that same party in that same province is overlooking a lot of very, very nasty things about Louis Riel to hold him up as being some revolutionary icon it is proof that the standards are only different cancel culture only applies if you are not on the left but if you're Che Guevara you can kill as many people as you want and you'll be a hero to the left if you are a Louis Real. Uh, same sort of deal. Now, I, I realize I, I should, I should, that's what we should do on the Andrew Lawton show do like a debate over Louis Riel's legacy. It'll be uh, great fun. And four people will watch it, and one of them will be me, but uh, we'll have a great deal of, of fun with that. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the uh, Canadian political landscape uh, just briefly before we move on to the next topic. More polling came out, I believe it was today, it might have been yesterday showing the conservatives in like absolutely majority territory. Like this projection had them at well over 190 seats. And again, if there is a way for conservatives to lose an election, they will find it. That's the one thing we've learned about conservative politics, is that if there's a way to lose, they will absolutely snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. But it also means that the leaders and supporters alike of the liberals and the NDP should all be asking themselves some really deep questions right now of why they're failing to gain any traction and that's exactly the ndp conundrum here and the ndp shockingly does not seem to want to look inward and do it i mean i mentioned that resolution saying they're going to pull support from the liberals without a national pharmacare but even that is just barely scratching the surface of why the ndp are not being a trusted and legitimate and reliable messenger for a group of people who are disillusioned by Trudeau. Like the thing, Trudeau's lack of popularity should be a gold engraved invitation to the NDP to be a relevant and viable left-wing alternative. Like look at how in Ontario, the NDP replaced the Liberals as being the left-wing party. We've seen in Saskatchewan as well, it's the NDP that are the prime opponents to the Saskatchewan party. You've seen in BC how the BC Liberals just completely cratered, and now you have the NDP on one side and uh, really the BC Conservatives on the other. Uh, But all of this is to say that right now, uh, the left is, there's just a complete vacuum. You've got Justin Trudeau, uh, who no one really trusts or relies on to get the job done, and you have Jagmeet Singh, Who has uh, not succeeded in getting any job done except for perpetually nailing the I just lost the election, but I'm happy anyway dance move. So, uh, nevertheless, remember snc Lavalin, big scandal a few years back. The media cared about it for all of five minutes. And then the RCMP decided it would investigate, but didn't really get anywhere. It didn't result in any charges. Now, we've got for the first time some information about exactly why they didn't push that probe further. Documents obtained by Democracy Watch show that it was actually the government that blocked a lot of very key documents from the RCMP, hiding it under the veil of cabinet confidence. Uh, Joining me now is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, Duff Conacher. Duff, uh, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. So let's start first off with what these documents really reveal. I know you have to contend as anyone who has experience with ATIPS does with a litany of redactions, but there was actually a fair bit of information in these.
0: Yes. And what the documents reveal is from my opinion, the RCMP rolled over like a lapdog, did a very superficial investigation, only interviewed three people. Uh, Relied a lot on the ethics commissioner's report that found Trudeau guilty of violating the federal ethics law. Didn't really try to get the uh, cabinet communications internal and secret that the cabinet refused to give them. Could have gone to court to get a court order, a, a warrant for that, but decided not to for, I think, unjustifiable reasons. And uh, then there was a two year delay by the top officers after they received the initial assessment report, which really was an investigation. The RCMP just didn't want to call this an investigation publicly, but it was an investigation. And they should have announced that they were investigating way back in uh, 2020. And the top officers essentially didn't make a decision on that assessment report for almost two years and then rolled over and let everyone off without even uh, allowing an open court to to make that decision instead made it behind closed doors very secret and unjustifiable
1: uh, you touch on a, a number of important aspects of this. The, the one, I think, is just the lack of curiosity. I mean, I would hope that if the RCMP were investigating a murder or a fraud of some kind and they they run up against a bit of a roadblock, someone doesn't want to hand over information, they they wouldn't just say, oh, okay, well, thanks anyway, we tried and move on. But that's really what they did here. I mean, they, they had tools available. It wasn't just that they were up against this impenetrable force. It's that they didn't even really try.
0: From start to finish, there's lots of questions about this, Uh, especially when you compare it to, for example, um, the RCMP's investigation of Jason Kenney's leadership race and allegations about wrongdoing in that in Alberta. They announced that it was an investigation. They've been given regular updates. Uh, Doug Ford and the Greenbelt scandal in Ontario, RCMP, after having it referred to them by the OPP just a couple of months later, announced an investigation. Presumably, they're going to and are in Alberta and are going to in Ontario. Uh, use subpoenas, try and get search warrants, because you have to check all the communications on every device for everyone involved in these decisions to determine whether it crosses the line. And if you don't do it, it's essentially a cover up. And then a two year delay on the assessment report. They accepted all the cabinet's claims that everything they were doing was for good reasons, not for wrong reasons, I mean, it just raises a lot of questions about whether the RCMP is independent enough to actually investigate political wrongdoing in Canada, especially at the federal level.
1: We saw, just to bring another story into this for a moment, during the Public Order Emergency Commission, the government hide behind solicitor-client privilege, which is sacrosanct in, in the legal system, as it should be. But there was really no mechanism to challenge that. They kind of just assert it, and that's that. And and we see cabinet confidence increasingly used in the same way, where like there's not really a powerful arbiter of whether cabinet confidence is being appropriately invoked in a way that is is kind of keeping with transparency as, suppo- as what's supposed to be, I think, the basis of a democracy. Uh,
0: it's the most abused loophole in the, the so-called freedom of information laws across the country. They really should be called the guide to hiding information from the public that the public has a right to know acts, because that's what they are. And uh, we are still chasing after the documents, more than half of the documents that the RCMP determined are covered by our request by Democracy Watch, uh, more than 4,000 pages. More than half of them have not been disclosed because they are reviewing whether they are cabinet confidences. And if they then send us a bunch of redacted documents claiming cabinet confidence, then we plan to go to court to challenge that because I doubt that most of them are actually, and uh, the Supreme Court is reviewing this issue right now uh, and and reviewing the scope of that in a a case that came out of Ontario and requests the Ontario government. And uh, hopefully they will narrow the scope of that because most of the things that are claimed as cabinet confidence really are not. uh, And advice to cabinet and other very much abused uh, loophole in our so-called freedom of information laws across the country.
1: You've got the cabinet confidence loophole, and then you also have the RCMP, which has historically been, I think, one of the worst institutions in Canada for for its own access to information obligations. And I'm wondering, kind of in your sense, you you had access to these documents, yes, but if this is what was unredacted, I always have to wonder, well, what's in the redacted stuff?
0: Yes, and as you had mentioned before, uh, a lot of the documents, really only seven documents had not been disclosed before out of the 19 they disclosed to us. And again, we filed this request in July 2022. They responded in May saying there's only 96 pages, 86 of them have to be redacted because the investigation is still ongoing. Turns out actually the investigation had ended in January 2023, four and a half months before. So it it was just a false claim. And also there weren't just 96 pages. We received a letter in July saying actually there's more than 4,000 pages and now we're reviewing them now we have uh 1815 of those more than four thousand. the rest still being withheld uh, to be reviewed for cabinet confidence just to remind people documents are supposed to be disclosed within 30 days and you can get it up to 60-day extension uh, if you have a lot of documents to review we're now we've we filed this request in july 2022 we're now in october 2023 and still waiting for more than half the documents and again on under this blanket loophole for cabinet confidence, when most of them probably are not cabinet confidences. The other ones that were withheld and what they have disclosed cited the solicitor-client privilege loophole that you've cited before. And this is not the way these things should be done. There should have been a special prosecutor selected by all the party leaders, not by the ruling party attorney general. So you get someone independent overseeing these investigations with a commitment to issue a public report at the end, explaining if no one's prosecuted, why they were not prosecuted. And the RCMP just refuses to do things that way, even though in several provinces, special prosecutors have been appointed in these kind of situations in the past.
1: So just to put a fine point on that, you think there needs to be basically a, a public inquiry into, I mean, not the, the disclosure aspect, but the core actions that are at the core of this disclosure of, you know, why the RCMP seemed to so easily abandon, one might even say cover up this uh, abandonment of its investigation into the government.
0: Yes, needs to be a public inquiry. Uh, also, going forward, we need a dedicated anti-corruption police force that is far more independent from uh, the, the federal cabinet or any provincial cabinet than the RCMP is. Quebec has one, came out of their construction uh, scandal, corruption in the construction industry scandal, and uh, the other provinces need it, and so does the federal level. And the head of that police force and everyone's staff there have to be appointed not by the ruling party, but by all party leaders. and. In this case, we need a special inquiry, a public inquiry with an inquiry commissioner selected by all party leaders in the same way that the inquiry commissioner has been for the inquiry into foreign interference in uh, our politics. That's how these appointments have to be made. If someone hands you a job, then you owe them. And the ruling party hands out the jobs for all the key watchdog positions at the federal level in several provinces, only a few yeah. provinces is in an all party committee that makes these appointments. And that's where, the way it has to be done to have independent and effective enforcement of key democratic good government laws.
1: Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch, thanks for coming on and for your work on this Duff. Thank you. I'll keep you updated
0: as we continue to chase after those other more than 2000 pages
1: please do and it might be a couple of years before the, the next uh, release yeah. comes but we'll have you back on then thanks very much I, and I should just tell people on the access to information side of things it, it like, it's insane I mean I, Duff knows this very well because he's filed uh, many of these things but if you've never had to do this yourself there can be years like I Lindsay Shepard my colleague at True North if I, I, I might be getting the dates wrong but I believe she filed an access to information request and they gave her like an estimated return time of like five years in the future so she likes set a calendar invite for, I don't know, like 2057. And, you know, when, you know, three, five, seven governments from now, they finally get around to it, maybe she'll get the documents that no longer matter. I, I had, uh, uh, it actually showed up to my door uh, two days ago, uh, or no, it was a, sorry, it was a week ago, uh, an access to information request that I filed three years ago that I had forgotten about. And I was, and even then it was like mostly incomplete and I couldn't really do much with it but this is the reality of it you have a, a system and then covid they use as an excuse to uh, not actually fulfill any of these things they'd say oh well we've all been working remotely and uh, we need to get into the office to access the server uh, that is uh, required for it and uh, you know i had people like i filed a tips uh, because the law was not suspended the access to information laws were still there i'd file a tips in i don't know like april of 2020 and then I'd get an email, uh, you know, two weeks ago, four weeks ago saying, oh, yeah, we just got back into the office. Um, uh, oh, great. Have you finished my request yet? No, no, no. I just wanted to see if you still wanted us to start looking into it. Like, you think I'm joking, but this is not actually a joke at all. Uh, this is It's years and years and years. So it's actually no longer a useful tool for journalists because you spend all your time arguing with the government about whether you'll ever even get the documents and no time with the opportunity to review and let alone publish something of the documents. so access to information is severely severely broken and desperately needs to be reformed thank you for coming to my ted talk bit of good news on the court side of things which we don't often have the supreme court of canada on friday issued a decision on bill c69 which is often referred to by its critics in alberta and elsewhere as the no more pipelines law They found it to be largely unconstitutional. They said the government's expanded review process for infrastructure projects, including pipelines, was intruding outside of federal jurisdiction. This is exactly what the government of Alberta has been saying. And the government of Alberta had a a bit of a victory lap on this that it decided to take. And uh, do we have the... I don't see it on the clip list. I think we might have had a clip of Danielle Smith, though. Now, today minister of environment and climate change Stephen gibault the minister of energy and natural resources jonathan wilkinson responded to this historic decision upholding the rights of provinces to develop their resources they tried to position this as a win it is not they confirmed their plans to bring legislation back to parliament to amend it clearly they simply aren't listening gibault uh, does not seem to acknowledge how badly he lost And Wilkinson, I heard him say that he hopes that this is the last time that we end up going to court. Well, there's one way to assure that. They need to drop their clean electricity regulations and they need to drop their emissions cap. Yeah, it was a bit of a weird thing. Actually, to be honest, Stephen Gilboa was doing the jug meat sing dance thing. He was like he loses, but he's like somehow trumpeting it as a big victory. Uh, the federal government said, Oh, yes, we welcome the guidance from the Supreme Court on, you know, how we can better tweak this and refine this, and we'll continue to uh, build on it. No, you lost. You lost, and you were called on trying to trample into provincial jurisdiction with abandon. So, uh, what does this mean for Canada and for the oil and gas sector. Chris Sims joins us every Monday. She is the Alberta Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and it is always a delight to start our week off with her. Uh, Chris, this was a rare win from the Supreme Court. We don't get many of those.
3: No, and we absolutely need to pause and celebrate it, Andrew, for exactly this reason. Well, number one, it's just a win, so it's really good to see. Number two, it's a huge win, not just for people who work in our natural resources industries, but it's also a big win for taxpayers. So we did the math a few years back and we figured out that because Canada does not have its full pipeline capacity up and running, we've lost out on roughly $13 billion in taxes just over the past 10 years. And Andrew, that's just in federal income taxes of people who would otherwise have been working in the industry. That's not even touching like municipal property taxes or any other sort of revenue that the government would get from such projects. And when you try to think of what that kind of money would do, 13 billion, roughly speaking, would pay the salaries of about 60,000 police officers and about 60,000 nurses combined. So we're talking big money here, from, for for taxpayers, but more importantly, I think what you highlighted there was really important that statement from Gibault, the guy's just not taken no for an answer. And so there was language in there that is a little bit concerning, where he says, we're going to quickly bring this back to the house of commons and improve the legislation. So there seems to be this uh, zealous attachment to this sort of, no, you can't do that within your own provincial jurisdiction, coming from the federal government, coming from the Trudeau government. So while we think Premier Smith is right in celebrating this, this is definitely a huge win for provincial jurisdiction. We still need to keep an eye on these folks because they don't seem to be taking this no as a no. Yeah, I
1: want to read one line from this that uh, jumps out here. We are heartened that the Supreme Court of Canada affirmed our role on these core principles. This is of respecting the environment, Indigenous rights, and ensuring projects get access- assessed in a timely way. We will now take this back and work quickly to improve the legislation through Parliament. When the Supreme Court tells you that it is unconstitutional and, and all it was lar- there were some parts that were upheld as constitutional, but the core aspect that was at issue was found unconstitutional. Uh, they, they weren't saying, well, if you just did this, you would be fine because the, the court took issue with the core principles purpose Mm -hmm. of this. That was the thing. It's not just, well, if you left out that paragraph, it would have been fine. They said, no, you don't have a right to do this. But that's the part that the federal government has missed here. And I, I don't know how they're going to get around that. But I fear that the lawyers working around the clock on the federal government's dime will find a way.
3: Yes, exactly. So that's a concern as well. And then going forward, if you just read the way the Supreme Court explained it, it just sounds like a straight up win for things like what Premier Smith was referencing there, the so-called clean electricity caps that they're trying to impose on Albertans here, but also things like so-called just transition. So just transition is basically an idea coming from the federal government that they are going to transition Canadians away from our natural core, natural resources and to something else. And the transition part is for the workers and the employees within things like energy, trucking, construction, all of the stuff that keeps us warm and builds our things and makes this whole country function. That would have cost hundreds of billions of dollars just in the salaries alone. And so we were, at least I am reading the Supreme court decision saying, oh, well, maybe this is a good indicator that the federal government needs to stay in its lane, but their reaction to it sounds like they won this case. So it's still probably a big uphill fight.
1: One thing that I think is important to note here as well is that we've effectively given provinces a veto on this. If a province like British Columbia, where you used to live, says, you know what, yeah. screw this, we don't want pipelines here. If Quebec does that, we basically give them the right to do that. And it's actually quite astonishing that the federal government has tried to make a regime in which provinces that want this don't actually get the same level of of control and autonomy over it because when Alberta's saying yep build it we want it yes 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 the federal government's like well now listen here i don't know i may like and that's really what's happened here so it's they they've given the right to the naysayers to have complete like carte blanche on these projects but they've not given the analogous right to those who want pipelines.
3: It's almost like the federal government has an agenda and they're picking winners and losers in this. What was really good about this fight is that it wasn't just the province of Alberta. It wasn't just the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We were actually an official intervener uh, saying, you know, yes, Bill C-69 is bad for Canada. We had our lawyer in court and all of that stuff. It was other provinces as well. It wasn't just Alberta out there fighting its lonesome fight in the wilderness. This time we had other major provinces on board. So this means, if you can picture it, the province of Quebec could not be told no if they want to have a new hydroelectric program. Uh, The maritime provinces, if they ever decide to, for some reason, use the natural gas resources that they are sitting on provincially, they wouldn't be able to be told no by the federal government. So it wasn't just one of those lone voice in the wilderness by Albertans fighting this. It was other provinces in on it too. It was really good to see this decision. Hopefully it is precedent setting and that means things like just transition and these strange electricity uh, energy caps will hopefully go away
1: yeah and I think that's the important part in the common law system we want to really hold to that precedent here because right now there is a federalism question at play and I mean when we saw the carbon tax uh, come up before the Supreme Court which did not go the way you and I wanted it to go no uh, it wasn't really does the federal government have a right to impose a carbon tax it was I mean it was but it was does the federal government have a right to manage this or does the provincial government have a right to manage this and the case was really about finding where we put, The carbon tax in that federalism divide whereas on this issue i think the the government pretty clearly said we believe this is a federal responsibility and the court said well no that's encroachment that's mission creep so i think in that sense it will be helpful and i mean obviously the government's going to try to navigate around it i mean my concern is that they're going to really grasp at straws here because one area where the federal government does have a right to act is in criminal laws and that's basically what they're doing with like to shoehorn in some other environmental regulations and also under emergency powers and we've heard some of the really radical environmentalists say that the government should have defended the carbon tax under emergency powers because of the climate emergency
3: yeah i've run into that as well so that was at the federal level they were making that argument i've actually even heard that sort of argument at municipal levels so a few years back when i was back in british columbia i was sitting in on an online you know discussion program with the city of vancouver and the city of vancouver was trying to do many things all at once they were trying to install a virtual toll wall around downtown to nail people with fines and fees every single time they crossed it They were trying to impose brand new uh, mega parking taxes on any new vehicles that were parked on the street rather than ones parked in the driveway. So they were penalizing renters, the people who can least afford it, the ones who were living in the basement suites. And before me in the queue, um, there were several people who were interveners uh, who were saying exactly that. That in their view, they were in such a moment of crisis and emergency for the entire planet that all of our other arguments were moot and nobody was allowed to bring up anything like financial hardship, fairness, the freedom to own your own vehicle, all of that wasn't relevant to these folks. They said all that mattered was the emergency. Now, do we have people in that same thinking and line of thinking within the federal government? Probably. Um, Hopefully they have other things to do though, instead of coming back quickly and rewriting this legislation. But that sentence jumped out at me. And I'm concerned that they are going to do just that. Go back and try to rewrite it. But hopefully the Supreme Court would say, you know what? We said what we said and go away now.
1: Yeah, I mean, if Vancouver were given completely free reign, they would just like put snipers up on the living Shangri-La and anyone that drives a, you know, diesel or gas powered vehicle just gets like shot on their way into downtown. So you don't want to give them emergency powers. But the thing that I, I find so shocking about this and, and just to bring it back to the uh, Emergencies Act of mm. the federal government, that was a useful exercise in showing us what the government thinks is appropriate when there is an emergency and, and we should all be very very terrified of the day the government does adopt the emergency rhetoric to deal with climate because all of a sudden oh well no gas-powered vehicles you can't drive to work through the week. i mean th- these are things that would sound absurd three years ago but now we wouldn't find to be out of left field
3: no, and especially if you look at other countries that are debating things like this, especially in their down. Well, France, I mean, France
1: course. banned domestic air travel. You, It is illegal to take a flight within France now.
3: See, and this is where you get this mission creep so quickly. And this is why at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we want smaller, more accountable government. One, because it's bad for people's freedom to have this ever-encroaching, ever-burgeoning government. And two, we just can't flat out afford it. Like, Vancouver was going to hire... You know parking cops to go around with these special ipads i'm not kidding and scan the vehicles to see what make and model and how new they were and decide whether or not they then need to be fined can you imagine the bureaucrats tasked with that sort of policing and so imagine that now on a federal scale like we're already flat broke we're already more than a trillion dollars in debt we have unmoney right now. But that wouldn't stop a lot of these ideologues, unfortunately, from cracking down on things like this. So this is, again, bringing it back to the Supreme Court decision. This is why this is such a huge win, is because it was a clear correction to the Feds saying, nope, these provinces are correct. They're able to produce and refine their natural resources as they see fit. And folks, it wasn't just pipelines. Based on how you could read the interpretation of this law, Bill C-69, It could be argued that, you know, uh, a gravel pit or a new highway or even Mm -hmm. a transit system built within the province's own borders could somehow be subject to federal approval. And so this is where this is such a good win for the Supreme Court to correct the Trudeau government here.
1: Yeah, and very much vindication for the Alberta government, uh, not just Danielle Smith, but also Jason Kenney, Mm -hmm. because uh, this is, I mean, the Supreme Court literally took at face value effectively what the Alberta government had been saying about this from the get go. So uh, well said, Chris Sims, we will talk to you next Monday. Thank you so much for coming on as always. Thank you. All right, thank you. And speaking of Danielle Smith, the Premier of Alberta, she will be at True North Nation this Saturday, which is, uh, well, it's on Saturday, and it's in Calgary. I would hope you uh, will will be able to come out to that. I know a number of you have already bought tickets. I I don't have the latest number, but I think over the weekend we only had like 20 some odd tickets left. So if you want to go and haven't gotten your uh, ticket yet, you can do so at truenorthevents.ca truenorthevents.ca, and also Candace Malcolm will be there. I know she's been on maternity leave, so we haven't seen a huge amount of her on True North lately, but she is going to be making a very, very uh, popular and desired appearance. I am looking forward to uh, being on stage with her, and I know you will all enjoy what she has to say as well. I don't know what she has to say, but I know you'll enjoy it. So uh, that's going to be coming up on Saturday. Truenorthevents.ca is where all the details are, and if it goes really well, we might just do another one uh we'll do it like live from uh, well from somewhere else anyway i don't know where the next one will be yellow knife maybe in the summer uh we'll talk to you all tomorrow at one o'clock eastern 11 a.m mountain this is canada's most irreverent talk show thank you god bless and good day to you all
0: thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news